As we turn the corner tonight on chapter 9 and finish up chapter 9, we have before us a, a group of sons, and those sons are the sons of Noah. And we're going to take a look at really what is the, the beginnings of the nations. And in a very, very real sense, I'm going to show you an actual article from this month's National Geographic because the world for a very, 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 very long time insisted that there are all kinds of different streams of people that developed all over the planet at different times, and those streams of people became what we know in our day and time as races. Your Bible does not teach that. It does not support that. And in fact, your Bible teaches very clearly, specifically in this passage, that to a person, we are related one to another. We actually have common ancestry through these three sons of Noah, through Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This particular passage has been misapplied, misinterpreted, and taken completely out of its context to actually be the background in this prophecy that Noah is going to give towards his three sons because of this event that happens here at the end of chapter 9 to even promote racial injustice. And so we're going to tear that down tonight and take a look at how that happened and why it absolutely is not what God intended and what this particular curse that Noah pronounces on Ham actually is. And so if you turn, we'll pick up at verse 18, and while we do that, let's ask the Lord to be with us as we read his word tonight, and we'll finish up here in chapter 9. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that as we read what you authored by the Holy Spirit, written down, no doubt, by the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, more than likely hundreds, if not more than a thousand years later, but recorded and handed down orally. God, we thank you that you've given us really the world's only history about nations, about tribes, about tongues, about what we call race. And we pray that we'd have your view, that we are literally one brotherhood of mankind every tribe, tongue, and nation related through these three men. And we pray that you'd help us to listen to your spirit as you speak. Bless your word as we read it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 18 here in Genesis chapter 9. And now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. Now, when you hear that name, it will be especially driven into your mind should you have the opportunity to travel with us next year in 2019 to Israel or if you've been with us before. Because one of the names that you will see throughout Israel is the name Canaan or Canaanite. And in fact, when you're in the north of Israel near the Lebanese border, when you travel to the city of Dan, Dan was a Canaanite stronghold. 
it is the largest and most well-preserved Canaanite city still left in existence. And in the city of Dan, this gated city, is actually a gate that has been dated to the time of Abraham. And so the Canaanites were the original settlers of the promised land that is going to be given here in a couple of chapters to Abraham. And so we have the birth of the Canaanite peoples. And so continuing on, and these three were the sons of Noah, and from these, check this out, the whole earth was populated. Now, one of the reasons that the Bible is so important in your understanding of your worldview is this is the only reliable history that we have about that period of time. Everything else is archaeological and anthropological guesswork. But your Bible says that through Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the entire earth was populated. So through these three sons have come all of the rest of us. As you look around the room, you're going, wow, really? And yet I'm going to show you that it's becoming very, very, very close to the absolute worldview that we now hold, that not only is that true, but genetically it's been proven. And so Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Remember the law first mentioned, anytime something, mentioned in, something is mentioned in Scripture, when it's specific, when it's different, when it's new, that becomes the way that we interpret that particular thing throughout the rest of the Bible, unless there's a reason for us to interpret it otherwise. And he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and was drunk, and became uncovered in his tent. Law of first mention, first mention of the drinking of alcohol, and what happens? Nothing good. He became uncovered in his tent. A pretty large chunk of humanity could say the same thing. They became uncovered in their car, their house, sometimes in their yard. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on their shoulders, and went in backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. For their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. And so Noah awoke from his wine. That's another way of saying he sobered up. <clears throat> Excuse me. I was about ready to choke. <laughs> he awoke from his wine and knew that his younger son, knew what his younger son had done to him. And then he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants. That's the only time in the entire Bible that that phrase is used. A servant of servants. But hang on to it, because we'll look at it in depth here in a little bit. And he shall be to his brethren, speaking of the servant of servants, and cursed. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And may God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. 
And Noah lived after the flood for 350 years. And so all of the days of Noah were 950 years. And he died. Very interesting passage of scripture. And some extremely unique things are said within it. And in this passage, unfortunately, uh, or fortunately, whichever way you choose to look at it, we have the beginnings of what we would call nations. We, we have the beginnings of what we could also understand as internationalism and globalism. And we also, very unfortunately, have the beginnings of racism. Not in what the text says, but in how specifically European and Latin interpreters of the word of God took Hebrew words and twisted them to their advantage. Because in the original text, not only does this not have a curse or a racial component about a specific skin color, which was what was believed uh, in the, primarily from about the year 1000 all the way until the mid-1800s, but it says exactly the opposite. The reason that it was done so was political. It had nothing to do with proper biblical interpretation And so we're going to kind of deconstruct how all of this happened. So this whole global village thing, the the fact that we are all related one to another, the Bible here clearly states that 100%, every last one of us, there is no one on this planet that is not directly related to one another. For about the last 50 years or so, due to DNA research, we started with approximately 75% of all human DNA was the same. That was 50 years ago. We sit today with almost a universal understanding that number now is 99.94% of all DNA, human beings, is exactly the same. This month's National Geographic cover makes us think, notice these twin sisters, makes us rethink everything we know about race. These two young ladies are fraternal twins. One is black and one is white. They have the exact same parents. And yet out of these two young ladies, you have ostensibly two races is the way we would look at it. But actually they are full-blooded sisters. It's one of the most beautiful pictures of the truth of what the Bible says that I have ever seen. The world is shocked. People look at it and say, well, you you can't possibly be actually related. Maybe you have two different fathers or two different mothers, or maybe you're not actually, one of you was adopted. That's one of the things they get asked all the time. Was one of you adopted? No, they are actually fraternal twins. Same mom, same dad, same birthday. And in fact, they are actually, as far as we're concerned, two different races. And yet from God's perspective, not only are they not two different races, they're of the same race. And as far as these two young ladies are concerned, they have nearly identical DNA. Take out the roughly 16 or 16 one hundredths of a percent that might be different, which by the way, when you look at DNA evidence, most of that is just related to your skin colors, related to hair color and hair length and you know, facial features and those types of things. It has nothing to do with what type of human being you are. And so God very wisely tells us that all human beings 
come from a set of common ancestors. And what you would expect to find is what we are now absolutely having verified. And in fact, when you look around the world, though we break people down into uh, some people as few as three races, some people as many as six or seven, uh, we have roughly 160 uh, nations on the earth that are of any major significance. In other words, they're not just a, a you know, an offshoot of some other nation that is also exactly the same language and those types of things. So there's 160 nations. There's roughly 3,000 languages and dialects on the face of the earth. And yet we all share almost exactly common DNA. In other words, you are one another's ancestors. God had it right. Modern science is now bearing that out. And so God's plan all along was that everyone get along. Amen? I was sitting there reading this whole article. I really encourage you to read it. It's actually fascinating. For the most part, I didn't find anything objectionable to it. I I kind of enjoyed reading it. And and I want to tell you, National Geographic is not known for their uh, right-wing Christian spin. So you can pretty well bet if there was any way that they could disprove the Bible, they probably would have gone after that aspect of it. But they didn't really even attempt to. They just simply reported the facts and uh, it, was, it was very, very, very eye-opening. So I strongly encourage you to get that article or get that magazine and read it. So when you see this, Ham is identified as one of Noah's sons. Shem is identified as Noah's sons. But very specifically, you notice the curse that's placed on Canaan. The problem is, is that Canaan, the name was misinterpreted to be a very specific and, and very singular people group. And it is a much broader group than that. And we actually have that proven to us if you rightly interpret chapter 10. Chapter 10, we're going to get some of the sons that come from Canaan's line. And we're going to find out that they're scattered all over the globe. And so in the descendants of Ham, it is not a specific skin color that is in view here. It is not those with darker skin that's in view there. It's actually the literal descendants of Ham. And it includes a vast majority of people who now live in Asia. It includes a large percentage of those who live in Africa, specifically North Africa. And it even includes some of who we would call Native Americans around the globe. They have similar DNA to the descendants of Ham. And so when we look at these things, we have to look at them from the Bible's perspective and not what people have been told because they're trying to justify their particular spin on what they would like the Bible to say. So I mentioned verses 20 and 21. I want to, I want to look at this for just a moment. The tragic story of Noah's drunkenness, and, and because I covered this in quite uh, a bunch of detail not that long ago, I'd encourage you to get it. It's online, uh, Christians and Alcohol, and so you can, you can watch that video or listen to the tape, or the CD, rather. It shows you how old I am. I still think there's tapes on the face of the earth. If you have one, they're worth a lot right now. I'm just saying. The first mention of alcohol consumption, and while I don't want to rehash too much of this tonight, I think it's very, very, very important that we honor what Scripture does say about the consumption of alcohol. And so here is the first time that we find anyone drinking al- alcoholic beverages, and the result is not good. Um, it is rarely good. And in fact, when you look at what the Bible actually says in totality about the consumption of alcohol, The Bible is negative on the subject of alcohol consumption. 
Does it have some neutral passages? Yes. Does it have a very specific positive passage? The answer is also yes. But of the 200 plus times that alcohol consumption is directly mentioned in Scripture, a vast majority of them have either a negative connotation or they are cultural in in the way that they're spoken of. In other words, at this day and time, you didn't go to the fridge and pull out a Dr. Pepper. You, You likely would have to go get water every day for it to be fresh and not tainted. And so if anything was stored in your house... One of the best ways to store something like that would be to allow a little bit of it to ferment sufficiently for there to be enough alcohol in it for that alcohol to actually be an antiseptic. It kills germs. And so it was the way that they could keep the produce that they had grown, and this would be done with wine very specifically, but they generally drank grape juice, but they didn't have to throw grape juice away that was fermented, that would become alcoholic because it was still drinkable. But what God didn't say to them is, hey, make sure you drink plenty of it and get drunk. He just simply allowed them to consume what was already there. So the built-in factor that God left was what we call conscience. It's like, I shouldn't be doing this. This is making me act stupid. And here in this case is Noah acting really dumb. And I want you to think about this for a second. How many years was Noah on the face of the earth and he was in essence the only one living a righteous life as an example to the rest of the people? 500 years of righteousness. And so... The first mistake that we see Noah making is that he gets drunk. It's a temptation. And so at the very best, the Bible is, I believe, giving us a little bit of a heads up here. It's like if Noah could fall into sin after, in essence, at least 574 years of faithfulness to the Lord and blow his witness before his children because of a bunch of wine, I'm wondering if God's telling us we should be drinking it or maybe we ought to think twice about it. I'm pretty sure the latter of those two things is true. Because number one, we don't need to consume wine because we don't have refrigeration. Number two, there is zero reason for us to be drinking strong drink. And we surely don't need to come up with other ways to make something that is highly alcoholic to the point that if you were to drink one ounce of it, you would be drunk as far as the law is concerned. So when people try and defend drinking based on a handful of verses that don't negatively speak of alcohol consumption, like a little wine makes you merry, yeah, it makes you merry, and it makes you Bob and Joe and a few other people that you aren't normally... Uh, it, it's, you know, there's all kinds of things that you can kind of slip in there as a possibility. But the Bible does say very clearly that after 574 years of faithfulness and righteousness before the Lord, the first time that this man Noah sins that we know of it is recorded for us so that we have it recorded so that we can read about it, it's because he gets drunk. That to me is good enough reason to take a pass to say, who needs it? 
If it can mess with righteous Noah, I don't need it in my life. So if you feel you have the liberty, again, I, I, I can't, I'm not Holy Spirit for you. I won't even try. But I'll tell you what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say anything great about the consumption of alcohol. It says a bunch negative about the consumption of alcohol. And the law of first mention clearly says that the first time we find it, the guy gets in trouble. So you make up your own conclusion. If I just uh, caused you to become convicted, take it to the Lord. I'm not trying to tell you one way or another what you need to do before God. But as for me and my house, uh, we're teetotalers. Just saying. Because I don't need the temptation. You see, when you look at this, you kind of see something. Sin's always destructive. Sin is always destructive. And Noah is enticed to sin in this particular case. And just as Numbers chapter 32 tells us, your sin always finds you out. It just does. It's the way God works. He, he doesn't leave us floundering in pathways of darkness and sin so that we can get in further trouble. He allows these things to be found out. In this case, his kids find out. This is yet another reason to at least severely question whether believers should be engaged in the consumption of alcohol. Because here's what happens to his kids. His kids have to see this. And one of them is severely stumbled in such a way that he is now going to change the way he thinks about the world that he lives in. And that's going to be Canaan. Canaan's deceptive nature is in essence fostered by the hypocrisy of Noah. Noah, for all these years, has been preaching righteousness. And brothers and sisters, moms and dads, make no mistake that when you show your children hypocrisy, they are learning that you do not mean what you say. When you say, well, you know, I can handle this, and then one day you can't handle it, they have reason to question every word you have said on the subject. That's another good reason to not allow things in your life that have the potential to be used by the enemy to destroy your children. The same is true, really, for almost every liberty that you could take. It doesn't even necessarily have to be something bad. It doesn't even have to be something that's questionable. It can be anything that causes you to lose your witness before your children. We have an obligation to raise our own children in the training, the admonition of the Lord, so that when they get older, they will not depart from those things. That's my job as a parent. And so here Noah stumbles. Can you imagine? Well, Dad, you're not doing what you said. You're always on me. You told me not to drink. You wouldn't let us have the wine. You made us sit at the kids' table and drink the grape juice. You said you could handle it. Well, obviously you can't handle it, can you, Dad? The reason I'm sharing this with you is I've listened to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and ultimately thousands of children 
in my time as a camp director, say this exact thing. My parents told me that I couldn't drink. My parents told me that I shouldn't smoke dope. My parents told me I shouldn't sleep with my boyfriend or girlfriend. My parents said this, but they did that. And the moment they do that, you have now set the child either free to do exactly the same thing or at the very best to simply question your integrity. Don't do it. Don't do it. There is no liberty on the face of this earth that is worth putting another temptation in front of your children. None. Not in the movies you watch. Not what you put in your body, whether it's alcohol or pot or anything else. Not in the way you conduct yourself in the world. Not in your language. Not in your habits of telling the truth. There is nothing because you can't pull that stuff back. You can tell them all day long, well, you know, I really didn't mean to. You open the door for the enemy and you're going to see that this particular event bore terrible fruit in Canaan's life, in Ham's life. Canaan through Ham. Sin is destructive. His rebellious nature is actually revealed. Noah's on his couch, his robe falls away. This is decades after the flood. I mean, imagine. This whole family is preserved from a global cataclysm. They survive this world that is a mud pit. All of a sudden, they're wandering around, and they're, can you imagine it? Probably very much like the story of our beginnings here in this country at Jamestown. They, they were just thankful to survive the first year. And now things are finally getting better, and Noah becomes a farmer and he plants a vineyard. Be careful after success. Brothers and sisters, be careful after success. Because it is after success that we let our guard down. It's after the Lord's done great works in our lives that we kind of take down the wall a little bit and we kind of see, you know, that's not really all that bad out there in the world. I think I can handle that. And all of a sudden, before you know it, you're disheveled in your tent. Now, we don't know when Shem and Ham and Japheth, whether they came at regular times or where they were living. Did they have a house next door? We, we really don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But we know the effects of hypocritical compromise. And it's borne fruit to this day. Now, having said that, there's not a person in this room, myself included, that doesn't have a little bit of the old man still left in us, amen? A little bit of that carnality, a little bit of that rebelliousness, a little bit of that, well, you can't tell me to do that. I was looking at some of your faces, you can't tell me to do that. I'm, la, 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 la. I'm not listening to you. I wouldn't tell you if I didn't love you. It'd be a whole lot easier to just say, you know, hey, if you enjoy Budweiser, it's up to you. I didn't say that. Why? Because I really believe that God wants his very best for each one of us. And so if God wants his best for you, I need to give you the shortest path to that best. 
not help you engage in that little bit of carnality and rebellion that's still left in you. You'll do just fine on your own on that part. Pastors are not supposed to be necessarily your best friend at times. We're supposed to be bearers of truth. We should be telling you what the Bible says, not what will make it very easy for you to like me. I tell every, I had a guy actually last, asked me last week, so uh, aren't there verses in the Bible that said you can smoke marijuana? I said, yeah, in the pothead version. <laughs> he started laughing. People want to know that their sin's okay. Sin's not okay. It's never okay. Not because I want to steal your fun, because I want to agree with God. I just want to tell you what God's word says. What you do with it, that's between you and God. So be careful, please. This brother took glee that his father had destroyed his witness. He goes out and he tells man, come and look at dad. He's totally bombed on the couch. Seriously, that's what's going down here. It's like, come see Pops. The dude's buck naked. He's in there. It's what it says. We're adults in the room. You can handle it. Come check out Dad. And the other two brothers are so ashamed. They're distraught over what's happened to their father. This righteous man who took ridicule and slander and this insane beating from every person that came into the region while he's building the ark, this man whose character was without question has now fallen in sin. And one son and the enemy of your soul was going got him. Now I can do whatever I want. Because dad no longer has righteousness as his shield. He's just like me. How ashamed. Notice verse 24. And Noah awoke from his wine. And the Hebrew there is indicating that he's coming out of the stupor. He's sobering up. And he knew what his younger son had done to him. He noticed his robe had been placed on him and it wasn't the way uh, he remembered being dressed. And all of a sudden the pain of his moral lapse becomes a reality for him. And he begins to look at his life and he's like, oh man. Dads in the room, you don't want to stumble across the finish line with your sons. You don't ever want to see your, you don't want your family to go this way. And again, this is not to put condemnation or guilt on a single person in this room or anybody watching online or anybody who, who watches this in any form or listens to it. 
It's not to put condemnation on it. You have a chance going forward to live your life as a righteous man and raise your children in such a way that they say, there's a couple things I know about my dad. And my dad lives to please the Lord. That's what you want as your legacy. The rest of it will not compare to them being able to say, my dad was a righteous man. Don't give that up for anything. Because you can't get it back. You can heal it. You can make it better than destroyed. But righteousness is one of those things that once you taint it, it's tainted in their mind forever. That's why divorce is such a wrecker of homes and children. You can say you're sorry. You can make all the equivocations. But you can't get it back. Don't give it up. If Noah had this to do over again, I guarantee you he would be a teetotaler. He would never compromise his witness for something so stupid as a glass of wine. Noah goes on now to give a prophecy. And it's really nothing more than a basic outline of the function of each of these three major uh, streams of nations as you look at them. And from all of these, and we'll see this in greater detail when we get to chapter 10, which is the table of these nations, because it lists all the sons. And gloriously, because of an awful lot of people wanting to keep history, and that is the Phoenicians and the Sumerians and the Romans and the Greeks and the Medes and the Persians, the Macedonian Greeks, they did a great job of maintaining names and where people went and what they did. And so we actually understand quite fully uh, the descendants of Ham and actually the descendants of Shem and Japheth as well. The descendants of Shem are primarily those people which we would call Semitic. So that would be all Arabs, all Jews. Jews and Arabs are related, by the way, through the same line. Um, they, are, they are literally blood relatives. So you have, you have the Semitic lines. You have the Japhethetic lines, which... Uh, that whole line is primarily the Indo-Asian European. So most of uh, what we would call Europe and Asia. And then the Hamitic people, which is pretty much everyone else. And so in a lot of ways, because people say, well, you know, the descendants of Ham were those that, that we today would say have darker skin. That would be people from Africa, it'd be people from... Uh, areas where specifically those who were Arabs who would have darker skin, that, that those are the only Hamitic people. That's not true at all. Matter of fact, some Asians actually are descendants of Ham. There are virtually every single race that you can think of in our modern world is actually related to Ham. So this is a generalization really about some streams of people and what they would actually provide in the world. And if you will follow with me, we'll try and go through this in a fairly short order here, these these three national groups. And so this descendants of Ham would be Phoenicians, Samaria, Egyptians, Ethiopians, people from North Africa, people from what we would call uh, Asia Minor, 
and the southern part of what we would call Europe and the western part of Asia. And so these people uh, would comprise that particular group. And the reason that this is important as this prophecy unfolds, it provides basically three national groups or three national understandings of different types of people and what they would bring to the world. And I want to tell you that each of these three is found in all three. So they're not specific to a people group or specifically to a race. They're found in all three, but they are a generalization within the descendants of Ham and Shem and Japheth. And so what this prophecy is, is that those who are the descendants of Ham are going to kind of do the work for those that are the descendants of Shem and Japheth. So those that work with their hands end up usually working for people who have more advanced intellectual understanding and more spiritual receiving. In other words, they, they are the philosophical people, the spiritual people, the intellectual people, and people who generally are working with their hands that are good with those things. It's not races at all. It's dispensations towards things that we're good at. There are people who are great at working. We have people who are extremely intelligent that are, they don't have two nickels to rub together. I've met some of them. I've actually talked to people with multiple PhDs that cannot tie their shoes. They're unbelievably intelligent, but they haven't got the common sense of a horned toad. Dead serious as a heart attack. You talk, it's like, I don't know. It's like, go get uh, fuel in my car. How do you do that? And then I've met people that work for a living with their hands and they're unbelievably intelligent. They've gone to the school of hard knocks and the hard knocks have produced an education in them that you can't pay for. And so there are really three national groups and they are completely general. And so when you look at these uh, modern nations that have descended out of them, Shem was primarily motivated by spiritual matters, uh, Japheth by intellectual aptitude, that type of thing, and Ham by physical talent, skills, and ability. Now, when you look at these tribes, and we'll do some of this in, in a little bit greater detail, this is where the idea of racism actually comes from. Specifically during the translation of the Bible, primarily from Latin into German and into English during that transitionary time. So from Latin to German to English, because the English were a colonial nation. They would be a world empire for quite a while. Everyone knows a little bit of their history. Matter of fact, England ruled a vast majority of the world for a period of time. In order to put under subjection all of the rest of the nations, King James, King James Bible, 1611, specifically King James Bible, when it was translated, this word was turned into dark. So it was termed that anyone who had dark skin would have to serve the rest of the world. And it isn't even remotely what it says. And so from that, the Germans seized on it. And so Indo-European colonialism 
latched onto this idea that there should be a group of people on this earth that should serve everyone else. It is not what the Bible ever said. It doesn't say it today. And what came out of it, which is racism, is an abomination to God. It took us a very long time to come to that conclusion, and we're not done fixing the problem yet. There's a lot of work still to do. Racism is an abomination to God because he's already very clearly said that we're all related one to another. We literally come from the same family. And so in that sense, we are actually brothers and sisters, irregardless of the color of your skin here tonight, sitting next to you, no matter what the color of their skin is, is your brother, your sister, from God's perspective. Doesn't matter about the languages. The languages we'll get to when we look at the Tower of Babel and why God did that. And so from these three sons come the rest of the world. The word that's termed servant here, And I want you to look at this and look very closely. The descendants of Ham include Romans, Greeks, Persians, Mesopotamians. Have I named anybody yet there that has overly dark skin? They're white, right? For the most part. They're the servants, according to this curse. It also includes Chinese, Nepalese, Bangladeshi. Iraqi, Kurdish, Armenian, Mongols. In other words, the people that inhabit that entire region were supposed to be pretty good at working with their hands. And they would provide goods and services. And it has nothing to do with being a slave. It has everything to do with actually being industrious. And that was the point that God was making here. There will be people who will be industrious. They're going to be very inventive. And in fact, when you look at those nations that I just, I just mentioned, you're going to be staggered by the individual pursuits of that group of people. They are the world's best explorers. They were, for the most part, those who reached out around the globe. They were settlers of most of the world. They were the cultivators originally of almost every basic food supply that we have. Uh, they developed the technology, the basic types of structural forms of building that we still use in the world today. Uh, They developed almost every fabric known to mankind in the making of garments and clothes. Uh, They discovered all kinds of medicines, uh, absolutely all kinds of therapies, instruments, the basic concepts of most of the physical sciences. So this was not a curse in the sense that it was one group serves another group as slaves. It was one group is going to invent all these things And intellectual people were going to come along and they were going to seize on that opportunity and they would take advantage of those who work for a living. I would tell you that that still exists in our world today. There are people that come along and steal other people's ideas when they have worked really, really hard and they profit from them. And so God basically tells us that the world's going to look like this. You're going to have people doing a whole bunch of work And people who have a serious mental inclination will figure out a way to exploit it. And they will end up, in essence, then having those people serve them through what they have made. The development of paper, the development of ink, the development of printing, all through the descendants of Ham. 
So it was not a curse in the sense of a racial curse. It was a curse in the sense that people who work for a living are going to support those who are philosophical, intellectual, and spiritual. And if you look around the world today, that is almost exclusively the way the world works. Because when you find people in higher levels of business, they're generally intellectual, they're generally philosophical, and they're generally at least spiritual in the sense that they think money's God. So God was right. He gave us a basic outline of, of what would happen with the world. It still exists today. It's what we see today. And so in that sense, God wasn't saying, hey, I'm creating racial injustice here. I'm making people so that there are three different groups. They will need each other. Can I tell you, if you're relying on an intellectual to keep food on your table, ooh, not going to work out really well for you, generally speaking. They'd rather sit around and think deeply about things. But if you're relying on someone who has the, the capacity to go out and build things, to come alongside and do the mathematics to make sure that your structure stays up, that also is not going to work really well. well. So we need people that are great at construction. We need people that are engineers. We need people that are uh, philosophical and can think through things so that we can figure out solutions to problems. We need all three groups of people. And so all it says is the group that works the hardest is really going to be the ones that kind of serves everyone else. And that's exactly the way the world works. So God was right. But he wasn't saying take advantage. And what isn't actually said in the text, but what does exactly exist was, is that within every people group, every language, tribe, tongue, nation, you have some of each. You have deeply intellectual people in every single culture and every language in the world. Some of the deepest thinkers I have ever met, ever met in my entire life, are people with whom I share almost zero cultural connection. But man, they are thinkers, deeply intellectual. And some of the people I've watched build things, it's like, wow, they're, I wouldn't have thought, you know, I would have thought you got a blister lifting up a piece of paper. And everything in between. So tear down those walls, family. Reach out across the neighborhood lines. Love on people. It's the way God designed us because we're all family. There's no racism in God's, in God's kingdom. It's an abomination to God. It was then, it is now satanic. We're the only ones that actually have the actual solution to all of this. And that's to look at the whole world exactly as God sees it. That's where Ken... God looks at us and he sees one group of people, his beloved children. And that's the way we should see each other. We have a saying that we actually use in our culture. We call it the fellowship of man. The koinonia of man. The communion of mankind. In other words, when we get together, we we talk about the things that, not the things that divide us, but the things that unite us. The things that hold us together, not the things that blow us apart. And and that was God's intent from the very beginning. That we would deeply need one another. 
The person who works with their hands needs the person who's intellectual, and the person who's intellectual needs the person who works with their hands. And the person who's more spiritual uh, generally is needed by both, and he needs the other two, they need the other two, she needs the other two. We need each other. We're better together. We're better together, family, than we will ever be apart. It's one of the beauties of looking at God's word for what it says. Japheth Japheth is not going to literally have the same tents. Notice verse 27. And God shall enlarge Japheth and dwell in the tents of Shem and Canaan. And Canaan shall be a servant. It wasn't that he was just going to, you know, overtake everything. They were literally going to share. They were going to tabernacle together. That's what the word actually is. They were going to abide. We would actually substitute the English word. They would abide together. That word tent is a leftover from the King James. We have the blessing of being able to understand this today in the way that God intended. And so in Noah's prophecy, there's not going to be a particular descendant of Ham that's going to bear this. In some ways, there's a little bit of ham in all of us, amen? Especially after Easter. There's a little bit of Japheth in all of us. If you got a smartphone, you got some Japheth in your pocket, right? Little technology. You can Google anything. Those, those lines are getting closer together all the time instead of further apart. You know, you, you can look and you could probably, as a matter of fact, you do. One of, the, one of the sad things about the state of the nation Israel is there are so many atheists. There are so many Jewish people that no longer believe in God. And some of that is a direct result of the Holocaust. Some of that is just the general persecution of the Jewish people on the face of the earth. It's like, you know, how can there be a God and allow this? So there can be Shemites or Semites, same word. There can be Shemites that no longer believe in God. We need to pull people together and not push them apart. Throughout our history, We've seen those who are Semitic that though they were centered in monotheism like the Jewish people, Muslim, uh, Zoroastrians all believed in a singular God. Um, you had Japhethites, the Greeks and the Romans that were largely pantheists, kind of God and everything type of view. But yet there's Christians in each. One of the largest group of Christians that used to exist in the Middle East was the Armenians. Descendants of Turks, former Muslims, yet they got saved and then wiped out. We need to do our part to make sure that everybody is valued in the Lord. The concept of, of race as it exists in our world, and I'm going to say something, I want to be really sensitive while I say this. The concept that separates people today actually came from the time of Charles Darwin. Darwin actually believed, I want to 
again, be really careful here. Darwin believed that the various races of people were subspecies of humankind. Hitler seized on that. And from that came Arianism. The belief that white people, in essence, were superior. They could not have been more wrong. It could not have been said any more of an affront to God than what was written, in essence, in the National, National Socialism of Germany. French Socialist, German Socialist parties, as, as they began to think through these things. You look at the, re, the writings of Friedrich Nietzsche and you realize what he was really getting at. He, he was believing as an ardent evolutionist that man was on this journey of evolution and that once man actually really evolved, we would all become white. I'm here to tell you, that was from the pit of hell. Because not only is that not true, it's not true as far as God's concerned, and it's not true even genetically. But that's where it came from. And so when I see people who claim to be neo-Nazis, my skin begins to crawl. That, that is the lowest that I believe a human being can go and still claim to be a human being is to hate his brother, his sister, for whom Christ died. Because we are family. And there shouldn't be a person left on this planet that doesn't understand that. And yet we still have people on this earth that continue to spew racial hatred and rhetoric. And if there's one place that should not exist, it's in God's house. Because God made it clear. God's told me who my brothers and sisters are. And it's every last one of you that's sitting in this room tonight. There's no such thing as a subgroup of humankind. We're all descended from three brothers, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And that makes us family. We ought to act like that. Because if we'll do that, there's no wall we can't tear down. Seriously, there isn't. When we start looking past each other's skin color to just the content of the character of the person, when we stop looking at where somebody lives and we just see them for the person that they actually are, when they become a name that is a friend instead of a skin color, then we're on the right road. And I don't want to preach at you. But God's really shown me, personally, that, that the only way that we fight this fight is to put down the things that we've been using to battle with. We need to start seeing each other as just people. People. 
family, friends, and not as race. Race is important in a cultural setting. It actually makes life beautiful. In that sense. But if it's going to divide us, it's not from God. Be encouraged. Love one another as Christ has loved us. One day you're going to spend eternity together, so you need to start getting along right now. Just saying. It's my goal. I love it. It's like, Lord, help me to just see people. My family. Help me to just see names and smiles and hugs. Reach across those, those lines that have been built up for far too long. And just to love people. That's what God intended. Amen? Why don't you stand with me and we'll pray. I'm going to bring the worship team back out and some pastors up. It's good to be with family tonight. Thanks for putting up with me. I know that's not always easy. Father, thank you for the beauty of my family. Lord, this family, it's in this room. Lord, my brothers and sisters, and God, I I pray, Lord, I pray that we'd start loving each other as you have loved us. I know there's deep hurts and there's so much history of, of painful things, but Lord, I truly believe that you're able to tear down those walls and to make us into the family that you intended. Help us to not be stubborn. Lord, help us to love unconditionally. Help us to see each other as you see us. Help us to call one another by name. Thank you, Lord, for the goodness that you poured out upon us as a nation. And Lord, we confess we got some issues. We've been struggling with this issue of race for too long. And God, we're asking you to help us tear down those walls. Help us to lift up our brothers and sisters and get out of our comfort zones. Find out what makes each other tick. Lord, thank you that you are sovereign and that you are good. And we ask God that you bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.